Welcome to Bowties in Business, where a fashionable nerd and knowledge meet. Regardless of whether your career is just starting, steady, or stalling, join me and a collection of business and thought leaders who are experts in their field as they share their decades of first-hand real-world experience from the ground floor to the executive suite and every corner of the business world. Hi, thanks for listening to Bowties in Business. I'm Tim Kubiak. As always, you can find us on our socials, find bonus content on the site, timkubiak.com. And we're back with Barry Pullis for the third part of three interviews. The first one, we talked about preparing for job interview. The second one, we talked specifically about preparing for sales job interviews. And we did talk about a few other things along the way there, as well as making career changes into sales and in different positions in sales. And then finally, today, we're really going to focus on that best practice for working with a recruiter. So Barry, thanks for being on again. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. So jumping right in, what led you to leave the corporate life and become a recruiter? Wow, that, I'll, I'll make this a, try to make it a short story. I, uh, I had been with D&B 17 years and I just hit a point where I'd been a VP of sales for six years out of the Orange County office running large uh, territory all the way Texas draw pretty much a straight line north up to Minnesota and everything west and traveling a lot. I uh, hired a recruiter from my region. He and I uh, were became friends and this was about 2000 when I started thinking about leaving. I eventually left in 2004 and the, the technology market was going crazy and he knew recruiters in that market and used to tell me how much they're making and between his technology skills and my network and sales knowledge, we could make a fortune. Well, I kept thinking about that. And four years, three and a half, four years later, it was time to go because I didn't want to get moved to uh, Short Hills, New Jersey. I didn't feel like going to Chicago, which were two options for promotion. And I was clogging up the VP role in Orange County. It's been there six and a half years. So I thought, I'm going to move on. And the recruiting world offered a lot of things that I was good at already is coaching people, assessing talent and, and having a, a wide network. So I had a terrific nationwide network extending into Canada. So we decided to do it together. He got cold feet right away and, and never made the journey with me. And I'm so glad that he was a great guy and, and still talk to him today, but uh, it turned out great that he didn't go because I was just lucky enough to figure things out on my own, and it's been a good 15 years since then. And have you always done sales recruiting? Yeah, from the very first days. I've done a lot of different. I've done finance, too, and, and technology and, and you know, assortment of other things, marketing, which is kind of an extension of sales. But uh, I think every year of the 15 years I've been doing this, I've probably done, of my placements, probably... 75% are usually sales-related placements. That is definitely specialization in your field. Yes. Which leads me to the next question. Often you hear the term recruiter, our audience is in different stages in their career. Can you give me an overview of the different types of recruiters that exist? Yeah, yeah. we'll, 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 we'll parse out the, the Army recruiters and those people although I get a lot of calls for those because we have one within a mile of my office. Um, so the different type of recruiters, we'll start with the internal company recruiter. A lot of larger companies and even, even small, medium-sized companies, usually a small company, HR will serve the purpose of the quote-unquote recruiter. 
where they'll make calls, they'll post jobs, they'll interview new candidates. In medium-sized companies, they'll have many times a specific internal recruiter. They fall under the human resources umbrella, but they don't administer policy, they don't create policy in terms of HR. They are really for recruiting, finding new candidates, getting them onboarded, you know, initial interview process, scheduling for the managers, for final interviews, all that good stuff. So medium-sized companies definitely will, will generally have an internal recruiter serves that purpose. Large companies will have a group, large group. One of my biggest clients has, oh, last count, I believe they're approaching 40 internal recruiters with a couple different leaders within that, that group. So large companies are going to have multiple internal recruiters that handle the certain divisions, certain industries, certain geographic areas. So internal recruiters, you deal with a lot and how you deal with them is, is you have external recruiters like me fall in multiple categories. The two most common for external recruiters where we have our own business or we work for a recruiting company. In my case, I have my own recruiting business. Uh, you will have contingent, which means we have a great candidate like the people that are listening to this podcast. We bring them to the client. The client says, yes, we like them. We want to hire them. We get paid not by the candidate, but by the client once that person is there the first day and they're signed on and ready to go. That's contingent. A retained recruiter, usually, you know, I've done retained search. Once you're established, you can, you can ask for that more often, although most of my business is contingent. I don't get paid until my candidate is hired. But on a retained model, and there's a lot of bigger companies that do nothing but retain, like a corn ferry uh, or hydric and struggles. That's usually for more senior positions, very senior positions, mostly. They get paid up front. They take money from the client and the client says, here's $50,000, go find me a chief information officer. And the retained people usually have a pretty good stable of people already to think about, or they'll, they'll make their phone calls and find referrals. And they've got their money already, but then they deliver by finding that person, the, the candidate they want. That's, that's retained. So a couple different types there. And then you have people that do a, a hybrid. You have other recruiters that are based offshore. And you have to be a little careful because while they might be legitimate recruiters, a lot of times they're looking for good candidates that they can then use as leverage to try to get into a client site. I don't have a relationship, let's say, with, with Amazon Web Services, but I'd like to. And I just found I just found Becky and she's terrific. And she would be a good person to kind of throw out there as bait. Well, unbeknownst to Becky, I don't have a relationship with Amazon Web Services. I'm just kind of using her to try to get in. So you have to be a little bit careful about that. You want to talk, you know, when you're talking to a recruiter, you want to just ask, you know, what client are you thinking about for me? How long you've been with them? What's the relationship? Just some basic questions, just so you know they have that existing relationship. So it's sort of like catfish the recruiter. <laughs> In that last example, where there are a lot of the offshore ones. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I to be honest, I didn't even know about or think about the offshore recruiters and how they would do that. So that that's fascinating to learn. 
Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't happen too often, but we I come across that stuff because I'm in the field. There's very few things that are done offshore that are done in modest amounts. So that wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> it's a bigger problem than we realized. <laughs> yeah. I hope not, but yeah. Let's talk about your role. You know, how does a recruiter like yourself assist the job seeker and the employer throughout the process? That's the balance, isn't it? Because you know, for me, I've been on the other side. I, I when I was at Dun & Bradstreet, you I'd get calls all the time where, you know, the best recruiters are going to do a good job walking the fine line between representing the client and representing the candidate. And if you're doing a good job representing the candidate, that means you're preparing them really well. It means you're giving them an excellent chance of winning the job. But it also means you're upfront with them and being honest with the feedback and letting them know this client doesn't like these types of things. And you're, you're describing some of those things. You want to minimize that. You want to accentuate these things because they really like these things. Um, I think also if you're a good recruiter and you're really representing the candidate like you should, you'll let them know if you have another candidate competing with them. That was always a tough thing for me. And, and Tim, I think you, you've known my work enough to know a lot of times I like to put a single candidate in play because I really believe that's the person that can get the job done. I think this is because I know your needs well enough. Let's see what you think about this one first. And I don't know why I've done it that way, but, but when I have had multiple candidates in play, I'll let them know. I'll let the candidates know. I just feel like I owe it to them. So I feel like not every recruiter is going to do that. And it's not necessarily necessary. It's, it, it doesn't, it's not required, but it, it feels right to do that just to let people know. And usually I won't put in the same type of candidate. It'll be one person has better tech skills, one better has better sales skills or something like that. So if they're representing the candidate, they're going to be upfront, they're going to be honest, they're going to prepare them really well. They're really going to dig in and let them let them know what they're doing well in the prep process and what they're not doing well, what they should work on. And, and hopefully the candidate can really help the recruiter by being open to feedback and coaching because they're going to get it in the sales world. I promise. Uh, on the they're they're going to get feedback for sure. They might not get coaching, but they will definitely get feedback. <laughs> you're right. You're right. That's a problem. They won't get the coaching, but they'll get the feedback. <laughs> so, uh, so on the client side, how we really represent a client well is understanding their needs. If in, in the more expertise you have in a, in a, in a function or in a, an area, the better you can service your client and really understand what their needs are. Instead of just going, uh-huh, 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 you, you really get it. It's, you really know what they're talking about and you can add to it and you can sometimes question them and say, why are you looking for those types of skills for this type of role? Because I don't usually look for that. And I think you and I may have had conversations like that where I, I just wonder sometimes out loud, wh why is that important to this role? Uh, also, if you're representing the, the client well, you're going to be honest about your candidate and say, every recruiter is going to say they're looking at other offers, so we have to move quickly. I won't do that, but I'll let them know when they are looking at an offer, you're going to, by this date, you're going to have to do something that we're going to lose them and not, not pressure you, just, just a fact. And, and it helps when you've been working with a client for a long time. Like, I don't, th uh, I think. We had that case in a past situation, right? I, I had a candidate I was interested in, and they had another offer that was coming in faster, and I could get mine through. 
yeah. you know, that was good. Yeah. As the hiring, hiring side, that was great feedback because then I could go stand on somebody's throat and get it done where it didn't take the natural course that would have taken another seven days. You're right. And, and it helps when you, there's that mutual trust between, between client and recruiter where they know that it's not like, you know, like the typical recruiter who might always say they have another offer. You know, it, it, if you, if you cry wolf too many times when you really need it, they're, they're going to ignore you. So I think representing the client and representing the candidate is always that a fine line because you don't want the candidate to feel like, ah, they're just, I'm just another number and they're just throwing a bunch of people in front of the client to see what's interesting to them. It, it's, and, and always following up with the candidate if they don't get the job is crucial. And, and I'm just still, I'm, I'm amazed, but it, it doesn't please me to be amazed by this. It's, it's sad that I get praise by, from candidates for following up with them after they didn't get a job, just to let them know. And just to say, here's why. They went in this direction. And it's painful sometimes if it's because they didn't do that great in the final interview. But it's, to me, it's critical for them to know that and understand why. And, and you know, usually there's a lot of defensive stuff, but I think it sinks in and they go, okay, so maybe I could have slowed down or I could have done this differently or that. It's painful to do that. But it's, I think it's critical to help for the next interview. I may not be with them for that next interview. I may not be representing them, but it's helpful. And, and just getting back to them is what I get praised for, not necessarily the coaching. They're not super happy about the feedback at the end sometimes, but just getting back to them is what I get praised for. And to me, it's just a, it's just a professional thing to do is let somebody know they're not moving forward with you. I'm sorry. Close the loop. It's a simple yeah. thing. Yeah. It, it bugs me that people don't do that, but it, it's amazing when, as I talk to salespeople, how many people have an interview and never get any feedback. Yeah. Not, nothing. nothing, not, not a thank you. We're not advancing you. Nothing. And that's not just a recruiter thing. Companies do it all the time. I think it's companies do it all the time. Horrible business practice. And I have clients that will tell me, well, that's why we hire you to do that. I say, okay, I don't mind taking that, but, but sometimes coming from, the client, especially if someone's gone through a six-week process in multiple interviews, and they made it to the final panel, did their big presentation, prepared like crazy for it, and didn't get it. I have a good enough relationship with my top four clients that, and, and I could have always done that with you, say, would you mind at least letting them know? And I know it's my job to do it, but sometimes if they've gone far and it's a high-level job, I ask the client to just kind of give them their take on it and are they somebody they would still consider for a different role right because sometimes that that makes it softens the flow a bit yeah and you know it's funny i'm not a person who ever shies from the hard conversation so no, for me no, for, for me for me it was never a concern <laughs> <laughs> no you don't <laughs> um let's see here what makes a candidate someone you are interested in for a role what makes it okay wow so many things right uh let's start with the skills and their background number one first and foremost and they did a good job representing the skills in the background not just super high level platitudes but specific stuff i was responsible for this i performed in this way uh so skills and background big now, once I'm engaged with them and we're working, 
willing to take coaching and feedback is critical. And this, this is going to sound incredibly arrogant, I think. So let me, maybe we can edit this if it sounds too arrogant, but I actually have good advice for these candidates that has been tried and true for over 15 years. A lot of times I'll tell them, if you're gonna, you wanna ask this question, ask it this way, don't ask it that way. Because if you ask it the way that you're talking about, it's gonna put them on their heels a little bit. You don't wanna ask them, how are you doing against the competition? Cause you don't know, they may have just gotten off a, a QBR, a quarterly business review to talk to their boss about how they're getting crushed by the competitor. So ask it differently. Ask them when you, when you beat the competitor in the market, why is that? And that might lead to them disclosing some stuff about, well, we're not winning as much as we used to right now because of this product, da, 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 da. but when we do win, it's for this. You know, they may not disclose it, but, but you, there's different ways to ask. But my point is, I'll ask them to change it. And I'll always hear from a client and I'll ask them specifically, hey, what, what kind of questions does she ask? And they'll let me know. And then I'll go back to her and say, I thought we thought we were going to ask it this way, you know? So if they can, I'm not saying I'm always right on this, but, but there are some things I do know. And, and if they are willing to take coaching and feedback in general, that is a great candidate to work with. So that kind of almost segued into my next question, which is what are three things a job seeker can do that makes your life easier? So take coaching, I would say is definitely one of them. Absolutely. Preparation is another. And preparation takes on a lot of different forms. I will generally tell my candidates, and I think we talked about this in the first podcast session, Tim, where we did research the company, right? Don't stop at the at the homepage. Don't stop at the product page. Look for their blogs. Do these things. So then I will generally ask them to do these things. A to, to familiarize themselves with the client who they'll be interviewing with, but B, to ensure there's a fit for them. You can get a lot from how they post things in their blog or how they do outreach to customers, whether it's through social media, whether it's through LinkedIn, whether it's through, through you know, podcasts like this or blogs. You can gain a lot and get a feel for and that's context to words on a page of a, of a website, right? So I want them to do those things and I will follow up with them during our next meeting. So what do you think about ABC company? You know, having looked at these things, do you feel like it's a good fit for you? Because I want to know that. I don't want to talk candidates into wanting my client. I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to drag them along. They need to be willing participants or it's not going to work. So they need to do that preparation. And a lot of times they didn't get around to it. And it, to me, that shows a lack of interest. So for you folks listening out there, if someone's asking you to, to check out a company that you'll be interviewing with, a good way to show them that you're not that interested in it is by not digging in and, and really looking into them. So the ones that do tell me they're interested, they're willing to, to move forward. And then from there, the coaching and feedback and, and you know, coming prepared to, to, to get ready and really, really stand out in the interview is, is the stuff I'm looking for. Okay. A company, what can they do to understand or, or ensure that you understand what their real needs for a role are? 
the, the, I don't look at it as the company's responsibility, but they, but they can be open, open and honest, right? That's that's going to be the biggest thing a company can do. And, and I've never, you know, if, if they're not going to be open and honest, I won't take the work because there's something weird about that, right? They they need good people. It's expensive to use me, but it's even more expensive to leave that position unfilled, especially if we're talking about sales positions. So it's equally more expensive if you make a bad hire. Uh, it's it's more, yeah, you, you said it right. It's more expensive if you make a bad hire, correct? Because yeah. you went through the training, you didn't get the productivity you wanted, but you spent the money on the training, you spent the money on the onboarding, you spent the money for for you know whatever you paid them for whatever period of time and didn't really move the needle at all. So now we just lost 90 days, 120 days, and we're going back to square one. And it costs all the same money to do the recruiting process again, the onboarding process. So yeah, it's, it's very expensive to make bad decisions. So what a company can do is be open and honest and, and, and just lay out the needs. What I do, it's, it's, it's really mostly incumbent on me to make sure I'm asking the good questions and not just leaving it at, you know, what, so what kind of skills you're looking for. I always follow up with why, why are those important to you? What, what, what have you hired in the past? And you know, when that looked like this and how does that perform for you? All that stuff. And the more, uh, the more honest they are about it, the better the information. And, and luckily I've, I've had really good luck with the, uh, with clients being, being open and honest. Have you seen clients' ability to articulate what they need shift or evolve? Not that they're being dishonest, but just as they work through that process with you? Situational, again. I think the higher I'm up in the organization, and this is something I had to do, and not just stay within HR, human resources, and the internal recruiter, because they're sharp people that lack, sometimes lack awareness of how their groups work. I have a couple clients in the data analytics field and which has been my world for 30 years. So I know those, that space extremely well and they generally don't even talk to me about the roles because I ask questions they can't answer. So now they put me just in front. We don't even start with HR. We go straight to the hiring manager because we talk the same language and, and that's very helpful. So it's not so much evolving. It's I evolved, I think, to make sure I'm going to the right source so I'm not putting an HR person into an uncomfortable position, not being able to answer a single one of my questions. I'm talking about, you know, how, how, how deep does their predictive modeling knowledge need to be uh, do they have to know you know multi-regression uh multivariate multivariate regression analysis or they have you know a lot of times they won't know the answer to that and it's important though because th these roles are going to depend on it and, and i can put a candidate in play that they say well they don't have this this one skill because the hr person didn't know to ask that's a pretty deep conversation i would think or is it obvious by industry and it just sounds deep because you used four words I didn't know? Oh, the, the multivariate? Uh, <laughs> yeah. It depends on the roles because that's that's part and parcel to certain roles, right? For especially when we get into predictive modeling, there's there's some just basic things people need to to have depending on what their role is. If they're going to be a technical consultant versus uh, an actual programmer, 
or a um, decision scientist, right? Which is people actually build the models. Uh, yeah, so it is a detailed conversation. In the higher level of the role, the more we have to get into those, but, but it, it, to your question of, you know, has it evolved where they're, they're, it's, it's tough for them to really under, to, to, to answer the questions? I don't think so. I think it's, it's easier for them to answer the questions because they have a lot of these, especially my, my clients are, tend to be bigger and, and publicly traded. They, they tend to have consultants that help them really, really lay out what they want. And I don't always agree because sometimes they do it off of industry research and saying these skills are best for these types of roles. And I look at it and go, I mean, if they want to make a lot of friends out in the field, that's great. But if they actually want to sell, you probably want a little harder skill here or there. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, I, don't, I don't think it's gotten harder. I think it's actually easier for them to understand. It's just if you're at the HR level, they're such generalists, they, they don't have as good a grip about the, the nuanced stuff. Does that, does that answer it? I don't know if I, I've talked around that one too much. No, it, it answers it because they're not going to have, they don't work in the business, right? They will yeah. never have the practitioners or the line of business manager or even the executives functional knowledge of what that really takes. My opinion. Correct. On, no, you're, you're, on the button and it's great when the recruiter has a good relationship with the HR team so that they're not feeling possessive and threatened that they let the recruiter talk to the hiring manager directly rather than kind of be posers and, and pretend they have the knowledge or at least surface level enough that, or that, you know, they put you off and say, it's not really that important. We're looking for this, this, and this, and you get that. That's all we need. Well, that's incorrect. That's a good way to put five candidates in front of them and none of them make it past the first round. So, yeah, if you can, if you can dig in and, and find people that know the answers to the detailed questions, that's the key. Every once in a while, the HR people will know it if they, if they have a lot of seniority. Job seekers, what can they do? We talked about preparation being key for an interview. What should they do prior to a first conversation with someone like yourself, someone who's a recruiter? It's not too different from what they'd be doing if, if the client is identified, that's the main thrust of their effort and work to understand. And they, they can check out the background of my firm and what I've done in the past. So I'm not, I don't worry about too much of how much they know about me. It shows basic research. That's, that's cool. It's, it's always good to, you know, drop a little bit of information that you, you did research on the person you're about to talk to because it's kind of expected, but I don't, yeah, they just need to be open-minded and, and have done some prep work on the client that, that I introduced to them already, I would think. Um, cause I don't, I don't have deep conversations with candidates that just call me out of the blue. Usually they're referred to me by somebody or I made an initial outreach call to them. That makes sense. It does. Which leads me actually to my final question. What makes somebody appealing on a LinkedIn search or something when you find them that you pick up the phone or do the outreach? Ah, appealing on a LinkedIn profile is going to be very much like the resume, skills and experience. And a clean LinkedIn profile that if I, if I have picked up a resume, like it was referred to me or I picked up a resume on one of the resume sites, 
excuse me, if that resume doesn't match LinkedIn fairly closely, it doesn't have to be identical. If it is identical, that is more than okay. But it has to it has to match. You can't have different timelines in there. That's a big red flag. Something's wrong there. Either you have horrible attention to detail or you're fibbing on one of the profiles. Neither of those are good. So they should resemble each other very closely. LinkedIn gives you a little more latitude to editorialize a little more, put a little more of your personal stuff in there, which is great. No problem with that. But the basics of your experience, your work experience and your skills should map really closely to your resume. So that's important to me. And then when I, when I see a resume and I compare it to LinkedIn, let's take it from one, one, I mean, to me, LinkedIn is more of a business platform. I know a lot of people still call it social media, but to me, it's a business platform, but we'll, we'll call it, we'll put it under the social media umbrella. Uh, an appealing LinkedIn profile also doesn't lead me to an unappealing Facebook or Instagram profile, which Instagram, they'd have to have an open uh, privacy setting. But, um, but if you got a if you got a Facebook profile that really reflects strongly on your early young days, um, where you know you were very fond of the ever popular double flip off or cake stand or whatever. Hey, I was great. in Motley Crew. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> I, know, I know your background. You know, and that's 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 long enough in the past. You know, the the statute of the limitations has run out on that because it's been fifty years. <laughs> No. <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying. It's, it's you know what it depends on who you're interviewing with too, because some some firms might be equally fond of the double flip off as you are, right? Back when yeah. you were you were 19 or 20. But for the most part, you play it safe. If you have you have some what could be less than than professional shots in your Facebook or Instagram profiles, you know what, scrub it a little bit. I'm not saying you, people have to change who they are. You still want to, you know, show your personality. But if you're looking for a job, we don't want to know who's looking at that. It could be um, a very tolerant, open-minded person that, you know what, they've done their share of cake stands too. But we don't generally, you know, going from a LinkedIn profile looks so good and then Every once in a while, I'll, it depends on who I'm hiring for. If I know they're going to be looking at Facebook profiles, I'll check it out first. Uh, but I don't do it for that many. But when I do, you know, it's just one of those where you kind of hold your breath and hope for nothing too incriminating. And again, don't want to change people's just yeah. their free-spirited approach. At the same time, scrub it a little bit. You can always post them back up after you get the job. You know, and that is such a tough thing, right? Yes. I live in the Midwest, right? And I stick out like a sore thumb here in so many ways. Um, <laughs> you know, so things that I wouldn't blink at, you know, the guy two doors down would lose his mind at. <laughs> and, you know, and you just don't, you don't know. By the way, for anyone listening, I personally use Facebook a little bit for my business and mainly to upset my in-laws. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, you just said it. I mean, beauty's in the eye of the beholder and, and uh, uh, you know, offensive things are in the eye of the beholder. You, you may have a photo of taking 
a gigantic bong rip from some you made it yourself with all kinds of you, you MacGyvered some crazy materials into this awesome bong you used throughout college. Well, most people look at that and go, that's not great. But then for a mechanical design guy, you might look at that and go, this is brilliant. You see how he brought the tube up here? You know, most people look at that and go, that may not be great, but it's in the eye of the beholder. But to be safe, probably best just to scrub it a little bit. <laughs> That's good advice. You know, and the other thing is, and I tell people this all the time, actually, you should lock your profiles. Yeah, go all the way. Yeah, might go, as well. go all the way, lock your profiles. You know, and it's funny, I had this conversation with my wife. I had posted something on Twitter over the weekend. She's like, you know, people that want to do business with you might read that the wrong way. And I'm like, hmm, then they probably don't want to do business with me, but I'm 50 well, years I was old. Gonna, you know, I was just going to say, though, if you're locking it, the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh, damn, what's he hiding? Because that, that sounds, I want to see that one for sure. Believe it or not, I think you're going to see that more and more because just going like to my old industry and Data privacy is a bigger and bigger issue, right? And Facebook is selling you data out the back door. Make no mistake about it. But oh, yeah. if you lock, if you lock your Facebook, you lock your Twitter, you lock your Instagram. If you're not using it to truly promote yourself, your product, an industry position, a platform, whatever, um, and it is truly for personal use, you should have it locked just from data privacy, because there's enough data lakes and streams and pools out there. And I can go into this for hours, but essentially everything you do is a digital footprint. And you're just, by leaving it unlocked, you're making it easier for bots to scrape it, people to steal your identity, a thousand other bad things that can happen other than you and me seeing it when we're interviewing it. That's probably the least bad thing that can happen. Right, right. And, and being that you're a, a security expert, I would say it's good, really good advice. I mean, we, we give up a lot of privacy for convenience nowadays, don't we? Yet at the same time, there's more and better ways to protect some of that. Still have the convenience, but protect your data more than, than we're doing now. So that, that's, I think that's great advice. Yeah, there's no such, yes, there are open source projects. So nobody spam me with this one, but they're really outside of, legitimate open source initiatives there are no such things as free in this world the old thing still holds true if you have a free app they are doing something with your data <laughs> if yes. you have a free virus protection they are doing something with your data um and you know congress just picked on a couple of companies before this latest outbreak that were essentially saying we don't do anything with your data oh but by the way we have a marketing firm that we also own Entirely that has access to all your keystrokes, what's open on your windows. And, you know, we're recording this on Zoom. And just this week it came out that, you know, look, Zoom's monitoring you. It has an attention monitoring. So it can tell if I have Zoom front and center or if I'm looking at somebody's LinkedIn profile while we're talking. And, you know, other companies, not to just single out Zoom, that are conferencing platforms do the same thing. You know, the, the one with the big bridge logo that, you know, is up in the Bay Area, they actually make their conferencing product flash at you if you're not front and center on the conversation. It's an annoying thing. Like a red light <laughs> special used to be at Kmart for those of us that are old enough to remember Kmart. Um, yeah, there's so many things. That's actually why I'm going to data privacy stuff on the website. It really has no feed into my current business or my day job. I just think people need to be better educated. So, yeah, I think it's a good point. That might be another podcast all to itself. Yeah, so, so we actually did what is data privacy a few weeks back, and it 
our most popular YouTube video. We literally just threw Slideware up. There's nothing sexy on it. Two nerds talking about data privacy. We did a piece on what are cookies and how they're used. And actually the third piece is a bit overdue. We got derailed with other business, but it'll be on how companies use that data, free apps and the cost of free to make money. And it'll end up being an eight-port series when it's all said and done. It'll be woven into the podcast. It'll be on the YouTube. It'll, you know, all the places I just said you shouldn't have or you should lock, it will be public for the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I uh, think it's really good advice, but I also want to temper some of that because I'm an investor in one of the biggest aggregators of data that they sell, and I need them to rebound a little bit. <laughs> a pretty big investor in that company so you know we'll talk about that one later I, I would say you know and data aggregation isn't going to go away I, and i actually believe it just should be more transparent right that we we could have a whole separate conversation on this but i believe you have to be transparent with what you're doing with the data it, and if you are and people don't read plain english terms of service or eulas then that's on them but if you don't tell them what you're doing with it and you're logging your keystrokes and you're sending it off. And oh, by the way, great Aunt Jane now knows that you like whatever that isn't cool. Um, or that you built that bomb in college that you talked about. Yeah, yeah. Know, th th then there's a problem, you know? <laughs> right. All right, so I'm gonna wrap this up. Everybody, thanks for listening. Appreciate you being here, Barry. Um, we do mailbag episode once a quarter, so we'll definitely get you back on for the next mailbag where we open it up to all of our listeners in the world. And whoever wants to dial in can dial in, ask questions, get a little bit of quick training on whatever the topic is. And we didn't pick the topic yet because it's about three months out. We just did the last one. But um, thanks for being here. You're welcome. It was fun. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We put out fresh content every Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. Tell your friends and share on your own social media accounts. Want us to see what you have to say? It's a BYOB kind of party. Bring your own bow tie. So hashtag bring your own bow tie. Our listeners are important to us. After all, it's you we create this content for. With that in mind, we're doing a mailbag episode once a quarter. If you have suggestions, ideas, or questions you'd like answered, email us at mailbag at bowtiesandbusiness.com. This show is produced, edited, and researched by Courtney Kubiak with the help of her rescue dogs, Tequila Rose and Rooney.